Hi everybody and welcome to my podcast on cracking the code into the pharmaceutical industry. My name is Lizzie and I have recently graduated with a Masters of Neuroscience. If like me you're looking to step out of academia and into the pharmaceutical industry, then this podcast is for you. I'll be speaking with experts in roles within the industry, science graduates who have made it as well as specialist recruiters for their top tips. Does this sound interesting? Then just hit play and let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am joined by Kevin Lynch. Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Pleasure, Lizzie. Nice to see you. Now, normally I I do an introduction for all my guests, but this time I um, decided that I would let you introduce yourself. So tell us a bit about yourself, what you what you did at university and um, what was your first role in the in the industry? Sure. So I kind of followed initially a fairly conventional medical track, um, studying medicine actually at the University of Tasmania in Hobart and then moved from there into a basic physician training. But having completed that, I wasn't really very sure what I wanted to do longer term. And part of that was a personal thing that I had um, a wife and two young children and we'd had a kind of crazily busy few years. So we decided to go traveling for six months, after which we wound up in the UK where I was born. And I decided to sort of try something a little bit different. So I actually started working in a scientific publishing company in Oxford in, in the UK at the same time as having a clinic um, at the John Radcliffe Hospital there and decided to actually start the pharmaceutical medical medicine program, which is part of the Royal College of Physicians in the UK. So I was doing a number of different things for for a couple of years uh, before my first serious industry position, which came out of an offer from Sandoz at the time who were looking for somebody to work in their pharmacovigilance and medical affairs group in oncology, hematology, uh, immunology. Um, and I enjoyed that for a couple of years, but then Sandoz were involved in a merger with Sibagaygi and my role was moving. And family reasons, I didn't want to move geographically and was offered a position with a, a biotech company actually in Oxford, looking after a, a, a genuine phase one, two, three uh, European oncology development program. And so that was my first real exposure to the full stages of clinical development. And I actually found that I really enjoyed it. And throughout that time, I continued my clinical role um, at, at the JR in, in Oxford and completed my my diploma and then my membership and then subsequently my fellowship as part of the College of Pharmaceutical Medicine and continued. But after about, I think it was six years I was there in the UK in those different roles. But then again, for personal reasons, we decided to return to Australia and Sandoz had become Novartis, and they were keen for somebody to come out to look after their oncology, hematology, immunology portfolio on the medical side. Um, so we moved back to Australia as a family. By this stage, I had four children, so getting busier on the family front as well. But I was still finding that I was enjoying that sort of mix of activities, spanning clinical development, medical affairs, and other medical activities within the industry. Um, and then that began a, a, really a decade at Novartis. And um, I was quite soon after that, one of the inaugural global oncology medical directors for Novartis um, at, at a time when, you know, I was very lucky to be associated with several really transformative medicines in hematology, oncology, 
which was a fabulous experience for me and, and professionally tremendously rewarding when you see drugs coming through from, you know, early clinical testing through to the marketplace and actually having meaningful impact for thousands of patients. And I just found that I um, really enjoyed that. Yeah. Things take a natural course. And after 10 years there, I was um, approached by a fledgling company called Celgene, and they were looking to set up an Australian operation and indeed subsequently an Asia-Pacific operation. And I was the first medical person. And initially I thought, why would I possibly do that? But I met some of the people and saw their energy and uh, that opportunity to sort of, again, be part of a big building process, um, which I did. And so I joined Celgene with some sort of anxiety about what that meant going from a very established role um, but that was a great period where, you know, I think I was, I was the eighth person in the Asia Pacific office. And then that began an 11 and a half year spell at Celgene, uh, where we went from a few hundred to 8,000 people and 500 people in Asia Pacific. And I had multiple roles, um, I had several years working in Switzerland where I was head of our R and D program for Europe, Middle East and Africa, and then five years heading all of our medical programs, clinical development and medical affairs in Asia Pacific, inclusive of China and Japan. So again, you know, lots of different experiences for me. And by the sound of it, all these various roles you've had were done sort of through your connections and internally, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I never really was part of a formal, like a job application process, which is a strange thing because I've been so part of so many, you know, mentoring and, and, and coaching of people for interviewing well where I've always been on the other side of the interview panel not not being interviewed myself so um, it has been very much network and internal based you know so the move to Novartis was based through contacts and then I moved to Celgene again um, same and then the last couple of years I've been chief medical officer for again another startup that went from a few people to now almost 500 people a company called Antigene. Um, and again, through friends and uh, colleagues that I'd worked with historically over the, uh, the CEO of that company is somebody I worked with at Novartis and Celgene over the last 20 years. So yeah, it's maintaining those friendships, connections, building that trust and, um, you know, working relationship with people is so important. And would you say that sort of internal recruitment is, is the norm? That's, that's a typical kind of thing in the, in the industry? Yeah, very, very much so. You know, I think, you know, one thing the industry does do generally very good is they identify people who have, you know, enthusiasm and interest and, and capability to do other things. Um, and the opportunities arise. And, you know, if you are geographically mobile and, and willing to take on different experiences and responsibilities, uh, great opportunities, you know, can arise. And so, yeah, you know, being prepared to say yes to challenges um, can, can you know, open doors as well. I think, you know, something, a flavour of this is always, uh, something I always tell, you know, when my sort of men mentees that I am responsible for is nothing you do, you do on your own in this industry. It's very much a, a, a combined effort with others. And that ability to, work with others, trust others, communicate clearly, clearly to your colleagues is such a critical success factor yeah. Um, yeah. In, in, in everything you do. 
you briefly touched on this, but um, what is your, your current role and what do you typically do? So again, I'm kind of making a few changes right at the moment. So the last couple of years, I've been Chief Medical Officer for Antigen. And in that role, you have ultimate responsibility for all medical activities. Um, and in that respect, we have one marketed product. Um, my Probably my biggest set of responsibility has been the supervision of now six first-in-human clinical programs um, and then a broad set of clinical programs and now medical affairs activities in China and the rest of Asia-Pacific. But I also, as CMO, the buck stops with you as such in terms of you know safety, compliance, all of the, the bits and pieces of your clinical and medical functions you, you in the end have to take responsibility for. Okay. I, I'm just actually stepping back a little bit from that. It's, it's been for a variety of different reasons and I, I want to kind of go back into a slightly more advisory role. So I'm actually now, just of this month, um, whatever the title is, actually Chief Medical Expert for Antigen, but I also am part of two biotech startups in Europe that I'm now part of as well. Oh, so wow. I'm sort of, that's quite exciting. Yeah. Um, which, you know, so this is part of, you know, I guess it's the sort of different phase of my career now where I, I really find that whole um, startup environment very uh, interesting and stimulating. Exciting, yeah. Oh, I can imagine. Does that mean you'll be doing a lot more travel if they're, they're over in Europe? I don't, I don't know. I mean, the COVID experience has been a remarkable one for all of us in that, um, you know, I have been historically a very, very heavy-duty traveller not always happily so. And in fact, I've been very relieved not to have been the last few years. But one of the lessons of the last couple of years is the ability to move clinical programs and indeed whole companies forward without necessarily needing to travel has been very illuminating. And you know, I, I, there has always been this assumption that you really need to be a physical presence at critical meetings. And so I was you know, often flying to Europe for one or two day meetings uh, you now see actually that that's it really have to question whether that's necessary at all. I mean, yeah. there are times when you need to build that face-to-face -face interaction and relationship, but I think we can t achieve an awful lot virtually. Yeah. And I think that's been a big lesson for everybody in the last few years. Definitely. Now, the, the next couple of questions are actually from a, a podcast listener, mm -hmm. um, Dustin, who's done a PhD in um, neuroscience, and his questions are around compliance in an MSL role. So yeah. the first question he, he would like to know was, what are the most important aspects of compliance that you might be asked to know during an interview? Yeah, I, yeah good question. You know, I think that in my mind, you know, having been looking look after this area for a very long time, um, much of compliance is actually common sense. You know, it, it, and I, I'm just going back to bed, first principles, really, that if you ask yourself what is the right thing to do, more often than not, you'll get the right answer. And, you know, if I give you an example that wasn't just about compliance, but something uh, when I was at Novartis, we were struggling with some internal decisions, um, in particularly with regards to patient access. And we invited a philosopher to come into the company to really create some sort of ethical and moral framework for our decision-making. And he talk, talked about something called the look of the other, which really means about, you know, how does this behaviour look to your friends, your family, the people you trust? 
And if you feel comfortable that they would support you in that decision, that that's a really good kind of reference point or frame of reference for making those decisions. Um, and so that's just sort of a general set of principles, you know, doing the right thing. Um, but beyond that, you do need to become familiar with some of the specifics of, of compliance in the pharma industry. And there are some uh, cross-geographical differences, but generally the things are much the same. And, you know, things like keeping promotion to approved products and approved indications, that's a sort of, a, a, you know, general rule of thumb across the globe. Um, and that in a scientific role to ensure that whatever you present as information is presented in a scientifically balanced way. Yep. to not misrepresent data, um, you know, to be always aware that the decision-making of the the doctor, the healthcare professional, have to be in the best interest of the patient and that, that sort of patient-first prioritisation becomes really important, particularly in a, in a promotional sales role um, where you have to make sure that there's no real or apparent inducement to prescribe or behave in a way that compromises that patient-first um, priority. Yeah. Um, and so that, that I would, you know, always be guided by first principles and then start to, to look at what are some of the specifics in, in terms of the particular, you know, codes, for example, in Australia, the Medicines of Australia Code of Conduct. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting you brought up the a sales rep role because they have, uh, comparing it to an MSL, there are certain things an MSL can say, however, and and, and in a sales role, they couldn't say, and and vice versa. I think his questions were coming, coming from there, and the off-label uses. Um, something that I must admit, I don't know enough about. I should <laughs> probably need to look into it. Yeah. So this is this, you know, and sometimes in the industry, companies sometimes tie themselves up in, in knots a little bit about this particular topic. Um, the 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 medical employees have what we call a you know a preserved medical channel of communication so you are not in a promotional role and therefore you are or you have the ability okay. to discuss uh, data that may sit outside of your approved product indications but it needs to be it, it needs to be reactive rather than you know sort of soliciting that discussion um, and the the prescriber, the physician needs to be, it needs to be very clear that you are not in a promotional role and that your answerability lies through medical channels, um, but you're responding to, you know, sensible, genuine inquiries about science or data or, uh, you know, use of a product. And, and so you can do that, but it's, it's absolutely not promotional. Yeah, okay. And how might these the issues of compliance sort of differ between... USA, Europe, and Australia. I'm not sure if you can really answer that question. Um, but say you're you're working with other people who were in Europe or in the USA. How can you kind of make sure that you're still complying with with what can be said and can't be said? Yeah, it's so. As I said before, many of the principles are, are the same. Yeah, there are some very important differences, and they particularly relate to promotion directly to patients or the public, which is allowed in the US, for example, and not allowed in Australia. And so you need to be aware of the geographical differences there. Um, so prescription medicines cannot be advertised or promoted directly to the public as in Australia as they can in the US. Okay. Uh, you know, 
most com- most multinational companies tend to use the you know, it's like a lowest common denominator uh, approach in terms of which of those global approaches are the strictest and use those as the you know in terms of your code of conduct and compliance but there's a huge amount of similarity um, a, a between them and as, as I said in the beginning the, the, those first principles are much the same in terms of you know scientifically balanced discussion and promotion um, the things that, that companies get into trouble with are things like donations, gifts, hospitality, <laughs> you know, apart from promoting out of indication. And in the last generation, I mean, really, since I've been working in the industry, it's got tighter and tighter, which has been a good thing, I think, for most of us working in the industry. Those days of excessive hospitality are now gone, fortunately, in my mind. <laughs> um, and- and that, you know, it, that doesn't mean you can't have an educational dinner, but the priority is education, not the dinner yeah. uh, and those kind of things. So, and that's that's where, you know, probably 90% of complaints and issues and compliance issues related to those areas that were an obvious target for compliance authorities. Okay, that's interesting. The next couple of questions I'd like to ask is around graduates and people, you know, like myself who are trying to trying to get into the the industry. Yeah. Why do you think, in your in your opinion, and with all your experience, um, why do you think it could be a challenge to get into this industry for university graduates who have never worked in the in the industry before? Yeah. So uh, I, I guess I guess the the industry itself typically they are seeking rapid impact from an employee. So there's a very specific job demands um, that makes it quite difficult to uh, allow for that uh, period of learning on a job. Um, you know, and that's particularly true in, in what we call affiliate organisations like you find in Australia, where the, the companies are usually quite lean um, and they don't have a lot of spare capacity to bring somebody in for a learning period. Mm. Um, and you often don't have people with the capacity to actually teach on the job, those new people. So invariably, the consequence of that in the job ad is, you know, minimum requirement of, you know, two to five years experience in the role. And this is that conundrum. You think, well, how do I get the experience to to make myself, um, you know, a a candidate there? Um, and, and, And part of that is in the absence of actually being in the job, how do you build a set of experiences that a company would say, yeah, this person has a, a good enough grounding that we that we can accelerate through them through that period and rapidly get them into a productive period with us. Okay. Well, having said all that, what do you think companies could do there? Yeah, I think, I mean, pro- companies could probably do a little bit more here, but they, I mean, some of them are doing a fair bit in terms of things like graduate programs yeah. um, and familiarisation programs where they do bring people in and, and, and show them how, you know, and the larger companies um, may take on graduates specifically. The, the internships work pretty well. Um, I, I'm actually part of, I'm on the board, or the advisory board for the University of Queensland Pharmaceutical Medicine Master's degree. We have a near 100% employment rate of graduates from that program. Oh, fantastic. Part of that program is also 
a an internship or you know a, a, a period of work within those you know a range of sponsor companies and that really proves very very valuable you know for both parties in terms of building that experience and getting over that sort of minimum requirement for familiarity um, I, I think there would be it would be good for the to be broader industry support to postgraduate training uh, and I think you know I mean something that I'm have been doing now for some years and very happy to continue to do is provide a little bit of mentoring and support to you know a series of people over the years who you know have, have been asking me exactly these questions <laughs> how do I get over that first hurdle and it's possible do you think part of what's holding companies back is their budget and the financial aspect to it that would be part of it I don't, I'm not sure even though some of these these pharma companies are, have multi-billion revenues. <laughs> yeah, and that, is, that always, always looks a bit perplexing. You think, why don't they have more money down at this level to help with this? You know, it, it's always that, that there's a sort of a, a downstream breakdown of budget and every department has to then break down into their sort of categories of, of, of costs and accountabilities. Um, and by the time you get to, for example you know, a, a training program or a particular department, they inevitably uh, have a series of priorities of where they're going to spend their money. Um, and spending money and time in a graduate program may not be so immediately obvious in terms of how beneficial that would be for that particular department. You almost need to kind of go up a few levels and say, actually, for this company with a larger budget, how about we be a little bit more supportive of graduates uh, and some companies are looking at that but it's not very well developed at the moment it's a, a, a slow process i suppose very much so yes changing the mentality around it um but you you touched on it could you talk about some of the programs that are available in australia so you're working with the university of queensland was it pharmaceutical a master's in pharmaceutical science was that pharmaceutical medicine actually it, it, medicine. Uh, at the University of Queensland. So I've been part of that for oh, probably five or six years now. Um, and, and that program now is you know, fully up and running, successful, doing really well. Um, in similar time frame, I've been part of a mentoring program through U- University of New South Wales for masters and PhD life science graduates. Um, and that has, has had two sessions per year and then ongoing kind of uh, contact and support, sort of mentoring. Um, and, and that's a lot of individuals coming out of those programs looking at how do they make those next decisions in terms of their career, whether that's into moving into academic roles, clinical roles, government roles, and, of course, industry roles. And I have been the you know one of the couple of industry uh, representatives in that course coursework for those individuals um okay. but you know, other than those in, in particular states where you can actually um do for, and i think you mentioned the university of new south wales has a pharmaceutical um, science master's degree which is actually quite similar to the uq one um there are other skills-based programs that, that graduates can look at um but to be honest i'd be kind of suggesting doing that in parallel with that job search you know, I, I think doing it in sequence is 
is mm-hmm. difficult unless you want to do that master's program or equivalent. Yeah. And what, you know, as I say, you know, the, the strike rate in terms of employment for people coming out of the master's program that we have at UQ is, is surprisingly good, actually. To conclude um, this sort of interview, what, what advice could you give to graduates who are looking for their first role within the industry? So, something I said to you, actually, when we first met, being prepared to reach out to people to get guidance yeah. is, is really important because it's, it's, there's no kind of website that you can go to that I'm aware of that will put all this information in one spot. Um, and so having a little bit of you know, confidence, be a bit brave, um, to to make those networks and and you know there are people out there hopefully including myself who are happy to give the time to kind of give you some guidance and tips and contacts uh, and, and I think that's one piece I, I think having flexibility um, in terms of the potential role that you can fill is is sensible without having preconceptions so you know people with a strong science background might have a very negative perception of what a sales role might be. Yeah. But yeah. but sales can be a tremendous learning experience and exposure to industry. And again, as I think I mentioned to you before, many of the most senior people in industry will have had experience in sales at some point. So it's seen as a you know a very important and helpful part of experience to the industry, even if it's only for a year or two. Yeah. Um, I think being prepared to learn all the time. You know, I'd say that whatever you're doing in your subsequent roles feeling that you're always learning something is 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 really important and and then you know perhaps finally be part of a right team that sometimes the role might not sound perfect but if you have a good manager and good colleagues and a working environment that's fun and stimulating to be part of that can be fantastic opportunity even if it may not be you know the, the perfect job description you know conversely a terrific job in a unpleasant environment with a poor manager can be a very negative experience as well. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I'd be searching for the, you know, the right chemistry in terms of the people that you'll work with. Because you know, in the end, whatever you're doing, you want to be working in an environment that you come home feeling, you know, happy and challenged and enjoy working with colleagues and you want to go to work on Monday mornings because <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Kevin. I, I really enjoyed this this chat. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And listeners, I hope you, you learned something um, from this. And I suppose one of, I mean, there's many, but one of the take-home messages is networking and reaching out. And it can be scary and sometimes we can feel intimidated by um, the past experience of someone we'd like to reach out to. But I think you've just got to, you've got to be brave and, and just do it. I think that's so true, Yeah. Well, thank you, Kevin. My pleasure. Good luck to all your listeners and nice to hear from you again, Lizzie. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes and feel free to leave me a review. See you next time.